Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program for WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This week, we welcome on Michael Tusa. Michael is actually a volunteer here at the station, and for once, he'll be reading some of his own work. In addition to volunteering here at the station, he also tutors second graders in a reading program here in the city. His first book, Advancing in Chaos, received an honorable mention in the 2017 Great Southeast Book Festival and was one of the semifinalists for the 2017 Faulkner slash William Wisdom Creative Writing Contest. His second book, A Second Chance at Dancing, is semi-biographical and concerns his attempt to learn more about his childhood and his relationship with his best friend, Caroline. His third book, Chasing Charles Bukowski, from which he'll be reading from today, was shortlisted for the 2018 Faulkner slash William Wisdom Creative Writing Contest. For more information about his work, you can check out his website at redhightoppress.com. And now, without further ado, here's Michael. Hi, this is Michael Tusa, and I'm going to read from my third novel, Chasing Charles Bukowski. Chapter 1, The Burrito Eating Contest A sharp elbow into his ribs woke Rojas up from his early afternoon nap. He had been sleeping soundly, and with a guttural groan from the pain, he quickly grabbed his side. Darn it, woman, he said, as he realized upon waking that it was Maria who had, once again, inflicted his pain. Stop snoring. You snore too much, and I can't sleep, Maria replied, agitated. She then turned her face away from him and wiggled her small, shapely body back and forth on the bedding in an exaggerated fashion to try to get comfortable. Rojas sat up swiftly in his waking discomfort, checked the fading sore spot on his ribs with his once calloused hand, and then, by habit, ran the same hand through the hair on his head and several times over the gray-black stubble on his face. He tilted his head back slightly and sniffed the air, trying to recall the night before and the morning after. Another shapeless morning that had turned into one more afternoon without ambition. His mouth was dry, as it often was after a night of drinking too much tequila. There was a stale, damp smell in the air wafting over from Pedro's barn, which was near Rojas's hut. Rojas was a large, strong man with an expansive chest and oversized hands. His physical size, however, belied his intellect, which was sharp and philosophical in a folksy sort of way. He lived in a sturdy adobe-style hut in the town of San Lorenzo. The hut was made out of straw, mud, and some brick and stone. He had lifted the heavy stones, hauled the brick, mixed the mortar, lifted the roof timbers, and built it with his own hands years ago when he was working regularly. It was minimalist on the inside, with a small table and two chairs. There was no internal plumbing in the hut, but an outhouse he had built was 20 paces away. His bed was a mattress on the hard dirt floor upon which he and Maria had been laying, and it was filled with straw wrapped inside of some sheets. A bookcase with 20 or so books from an earlier distant lifetime stood in the corner next to a small dresser. The bookcase was unusual in a town like San Lorenzo, as were the types of books it contained. Darwin, Mills, Tillich, Hegel, Schweitzer, and others. He looked over at Maria, at her slender figure, full breasts, and her smooth skin. She was part Nagabi Indian on her mother's side, which, he thought, explained the softening of her light-brown complexion. She had little formal education, but was schooled in the ways of the suspicious poor. 
Hers was a beauty that could deceive the uninitiated and jeopardize a man's moral compass. Rojas knew that he was too often dismissive of her, but it was part of the tension which had initially ignited and then defined their relationship. Romance required diligence and constant attention. Maybe it was this imposition which he subconsciously fought against, making him too often harsh towards her. He heard a breathing change to a deep, heavier rhythm, indicating that she had drifted off to sleep. He waited a minute. Wake up! We must get washed and ready for the contest this evening, he said, to her disinterested backside. Maria sat up abruptly, startled by his loud voice. Her long, natural black curls covered part of her face, and a few stray pieces of straw were in her hair. She was groggy for a brief instant and turned to look at Rojas, who was smiling a gap-toothed smile at returning the favor of waking her. I didn't sleep much because of your snoring. You are like an old goat, she said, after gathering her thoughts, frustrated with him and, perhaps, with herself for continuing to stay with him, a man old enough to be her father. Her own father she had never met. He was a simple story told and retold too many times by her mother of a handsome traveling executive, a brief romance, a disappearance, and an unfulfilled marriage proposal. Maria told herself that she would not be fooled like her mother. You are still young. You don't need much sleep. I never did when I was your age, Rojas replied, in a rehearsed defense of the fond memories of his youth and a possible deflection of the subsequent failings he had endured with the passage of time. Yes, I've heard your stories a hundred times. You were strong as a bull. You've been to Mexico City and went to the Universidad Nacional Autonomo de Mexico. You read lots of books. You led the workers at work and were one of the rebels. I know them all too well, and I'm tired of hearing them. Stop living in the past, she replied, annoyed, and summarizing her distaste for the stories and for Rojas, reprising her ongoing role in the growing tension between them. In my day, I was the top hand. I read important books and learned many things, he said, more to himself to prop up his own esteem than to Maria, and gesturing with his hand toward the bookcase as a verification of his intellectual history. Yes, and you still live in this hut and sleep on the dirt floor. So what good is all those words in those books? Tell me, Maria taunted him. You confuse a man's standard of living with the act of living, an all too common mistake, especially by women, Rojas replied, looking away from her. Maria stared at him. She wasn't sure what he meant, the words he used not registering with her limited lived experience. And at this point, my past life becomes more memorable all the time. As we age and our world becomes smaller, Maria, we learn to perfect the art of the embellishment, Rojas replied, with a faraway nostalgic look. Embellishment? What does that word mean, Maria asked, feeling he was purposely talking in ways that she did not understand. It was a feeling she often had with Rojas. Rojas turned on the mattress to face her. When we are young, we tell lies to others out of insecurity and our fear of being found out. When we are older, however, we learn the art of the embellishment, a true story to which our faded memory attaches some new shiny baubles. We think it gives us more character and makes our small world appear larger, Rojas replied, in what sounded like another of his many rehearsed lines. Maria waited for a further clarification on what he meant by embellishment, but it was not forthcoming. Being found out, embellishment, why do you talk like this in ways that I don't understand? All I hear are old man stories, she asked defensively, and more as a challenge to him than to get a proper response. I speak as an educated man because that is what I am. 
This I must do even in a town such as San Lorenzo. Now, many years ago, when I was at the Universidad, he said, it's not the past anymore. I want to live in the present. To heck with the Universidad, Maria interrupted. Rojas then silently stood up after her rebuff, pretending to ignore the wasp-like sting of her comments. He located his pants on the back of a chair and put these on. He found his shirt and, looking down, patted his tight stomach muscles in a way that Maria might notice before putting on the shirt, pleased that he was still in good physical shape. Maria stood, watched him briefly through uncertain eyes, then found her one-piece white cotton dress and quickly slipped it over her head. So who is in the burrito-eating contest tonight besides you, she asked, more friendly, as lovers at the point of tiring each other often offer misdirection to each other. Rojas, still offended by her prior comment, scratched under his armpit as if this might help him formulate an answer. The same as always, unless one of the regulars drops out. Nothing in this town ever changes. It's an ignorant proletariat, probably Jacinta and Pedro and maybe Julio, certainly Maximilian, and I don't know who else. You should enter, he replied, glancing in her direction, but knowing that she would not do so. I'm not going to ruin my figure by stuffing myself like the same old donkeys who enter the contest every time, she said. I'm a donkey and an old goat on the same day. Maria, you must learn some new insults. Your vocabulary is too limited. I suggest you think in terms of metaphor or analogy. You must think beyond the concrete to be more expressive. Besides, the donkey, he is smarter than a man. It's only the horse and the man who thinks like a horse that will eat until he busts. The old donkey that I am knows better. He takes his time, Rojas offered, waxing philosophic again, which Maria hated. Maria knew that he was smarter than her, knew more words and ideas, and frequently he talked about things she did not understand, which frustrated her. But maybe that was also the initial attraction she had for him, to be with an educated man despite her own limited education. But now she felt bored by it. Instead of being protected and uplifted by his knowledge, she felt more and more that he was using it to mock her, making her doubt herself. She told herself that one day she too would learn important things as well. She would sometimes, some through the books he had in the hut when he was not around. The titles and the names of the books were unfamiliar to her, and she rarely understood the few sentences she was able to read. Rojas started to walk out of the hut, and Maria followed him sleepily. They walked over to the edge of town and to the communal town water trough, which was constantly refilled by an underground spring where several other people sat, gathered water, or rinsed out clothing. Rojas dipped his cup hands into the trough several times and put some of the cool water onto his full head of salt and pepper hair, onto the back of his neck and face, and then rubbed himself dry with a frayed red bandana which he took from his back pocket. He then stepped away from the water trough. You call that a bath? Maria asked him sharply. Rojas never worried too much about her abuse, although it seemed to be increasing lately. He knew that she was trapped, and there weren't many good male options for her in San Lorenzo. There was Pedro, who owned a few animals, but she often commented that he was too ugly. Maybe Fernando, but he showed no interest in her. Maximilian slept in a barn and seemingly had no ambition. There was Ricardo and Rafael, two brothers, who she thought were weird. The others had nothing to recommend them. Rojas figured that as long as he didn't beat her, which he would never do, she would probably stay with him until he tired of her. It's good enough bath for an old goat like me, he replied with a grin, using her insult. Maria stood with her arms folded. I need a real bath, a shower. I would love to just stand in a hot shower, she said, knowing full well that living where he did, this was not something Rojas could deliver. 
It was an ongoing issue between them, her desire for a better life, for material things she had heard about, which she knew he could not provide. They were not married, but had an on-again, off-again relationship that lasted nearly six months. Rojas was easy about it. If she was there, that was good, sometimes, especially when they were both drunk and she was attentive and less demanding about other things. And if she was not there at night, he didn't lose any sleep over it. Maybe she had other lovers, but he never worried about it. He prided himself on the fact that he didn't want to own her, like chattel, as some men with wives or girlfriends wanted. It conflicted with his oft-stated desire to be free any time he chose to be. Nor did he wish to fight the insatiable demon of jealousy, which he felt was a psychological flaw. Maria, however, still had the burning flame of an ill-formed ambition and the desire for an imagined glorious future heating her up. Rojas was older, and that flame, which everyone said had burned so bright when he was younger, was extinguished long ago, leaving him to occasionally contemplate the charcoal weight of its remains. Then you can go to the back of the Mondo Girl bar and buy yourself a bath, he replied dryly, in a tired routine played out between the two of them every few weeks. The Mondo Girl bar was the only cantina in town which served food and drinks, and also, for 25 cents, allowed folks who did not have indoor plumbing to bathe in one of the two tubs that had been used in a prior time as cattle troughs behind the bar. There was usually, though not always, a bar of soap to use, and the water, which was changed daily, was cold. There was a high wooden fence around the back of the bar, screening the two tubs from public view, but two fence boards and a direct sight line with the tubs were missing, or had been pried off, and several men with nothing else to do would sometimes congregate to watch women bathe there. Maria stomped her feet in the dust, frustrated with Rojas, and walked away. Goodness, she said under her breath, as she walked to the hut to grab a towel before heading to the Mondo Girl bar for her weekly bath. Rojas watched her walk away, the prettiest woman in San Lorenzo, and then he walked slowly back to his hut, purposely, to allow Maria time to get to the bar before him. He stood outside his hut and looked around at the other huts in various levels of disrepair, at the sleeping stray dog that had appeared in town a few weeks ago, and he felt weary. He thought of a quote from Marx that mentioned the idiocy of rural life. But it was where he landed after he left the university, to find work. He found his old straw work sombrero and put it snugly on his large head. The stitching had abandoned part of the brim of the sombrero, creating a gap between the brim and cap, but Rojas did not care. It was a comfortable fit, and he told himself the white lie of vanity that he valued comfort more than appearance. He then started to work, walk to the Mondo Girl bar. From the height of the sun in the afternoon sky, he figured it was probably 2.30 or 3 o'clock. He would have slept another hour or so if Maria had not woke him up. The burrito eating contest was not until 6 o'clock that evening, so he had time for a few drinks, and as he too often did, to think about things he couldn't solve, small things made of inertia, and big things rendered in ash, too heavy to lift alone, or to talk about with the other regular denizens of the bar. It was what he did most days, now that he could not find steady work. The burrito eating contest was a break from the despotism of his daily life. When he arrived at the bar, Rosalita, a former inseparable lover from his younger days of rebellion, wearing a strapless gold and white embroidered dress, which was threadbare in spots, greeted him enthusiastically at the front door, where she often waited for patrons, an unofficial greeter, with an unsolicited kiss on the cheek and a request for him to buy her a drink. Her youthful beauty, which would have rivaled Maria back in the day, had been dimmed by time, but there was still an undeniable attractiveness to her 
an alluring suggestion in her large brown eyes of romantic experiences. He waved her off dismissively without speaking and went and sat at the bar. The Mondo Girl Bar was misnamed. It was neither worldly nor a girl bar, though some local women like Rosalita hung out there. The bar was originally opened during the heyday of the United Fruit Company, when the company had a large banana and mango plantation nearby, and its American executives needed a safe place to drink and eat. So the company ran electricity and a sewage system for its selective properties, built some upscale local apartments for executives and visiting dignitaries, financed the building of the town church in exchange for political support from the church vicar, and then built the Mondo Girl Bar. The bar was a cinder block building painted white with an open floor plan and a rusted tin roof. The name, Mondo Girl Bar, which was painted on the front featuring a champagne glass with two women in bikinis standing next to it, was now faded and barely recognizable. In its days of prominence, there were go-go dancers and prostitutes brought over by the company from Argentina and Mexico and paid by the company to act as local women and rendezvous with unsuspecting executives and other visiting dignitaries. The menu at the bar at that time included simple American food like hamburgers and hot dogs cooked in the kitchen that had been built and furnished with modern appliances. Politicians, including some from America that United Fruit quietly contributed monies to, would be entertained there by United Fruit executives. It was a place where deals were struck and bargains made. However, as United Fruit's political viability waned with the emerging consciousness of the indigenous people and successive national governments collapsed, expat Americans would not venture to work there for fear of being kidnapped by the small but growing rebel group in the surrounding hills, which called itself the San Lorenzo Liberation Front, or SLLF. At some point, under mounting international publicity and criticism of its human right abuses, United Fruit, which the workers called El Popo, changed its name to United Brands, and ultimately in 1984 to Chiquita Brands, trying to erase the indelible stain and infection of its neocolonialism and its deleterious effects on several Latin American countries. But its repressive policies towards the indigenous workers did not change, and the name changes, whatever salutary effect these had on investors, did not cause amnesia among the workers who felt they had suffered for years at the hands of the company. There were periodic worker revolts at United Fruit Plantations over the years, in Port Limon, for example. But when this previously happened, the company merely locked workers out or brought in West Indian workers to replace them. Fifteen years ago, there had been a similar uprising in the workers at the United Fruit Plantation in San Lorenzo, instigated by the rebels, which Rojas, to the dismay of his supervisors, who thought they had bought his loyalty by teaching him about the fine points of crop production and management, had surreptitiously helped to organize. He was a top hand for the company, while covertly being a leader for the SLLF. There were several weeks of euphoria during the strike, an emerging sense of self-consciousness and claims by the rebels, by Rojas, and by the workers of victory and freedom from the company's oppression. Ultimately, it did not change anything, and the company, fearing the threat and violence by the SLFF and unable to strike a favorable deal with the workers or the rebels, finally shut down all of its nearby operations instead of meeting their demands. After the company left and moved production to another plantation in Guatemala, there were few steady jobs to be had in San Lorenzo, and the town's economy, built on the false promises of United Fruit, slowly disintegrated. The townspeople, those who did not flee the country, returned to subsistence farming and bartering and to doing those things necessary to survive. 
The revolution, if that's what the rebels intended, was an economic failure. The defeat had left an enduring and traumatic stamp on some of the workers, a lingering scent of loss and confusion on a people trying to stand on their own for the first time that stayed with many of them and permanently defeated some of them. For Rojas, it was the defining loss in his life, which he often turned over in his mind, thinking about what could have been. While people in town held Rojas in high esteem for his role in the revolution, they still debated whether they were better or worse off without the company. It was true, as Rojas had told them, that they had been mistreated, rendered subservient, poorly paid, with wages reduced whenever the company expenses increased, and stripped of basic freedoms by the company. Rojas was certainly right about that. But they had regular jobs, and within the limits that the company's maltreatment allowed, a sense of purpose. The fight for freedom and self-determination, Rojas had come to realize too late, had an underside. Eventually, after being shuttered for many years, the Mondo Girl Bar was taken over by a local man named Ramirez and his family. Ramirez was a thin but confident man with a receding hairline, a wife, and three young sons. It was never clear if Ramirez had bought the property or just moved in and reopened it. The building was a run-down version of its original United Fruit finance self, though the kitchen, after some heavy cleaning, was in good shape. But Ramirez and his family continued the tradition of United Fruit, sponsoring a burrito-eating contest one night every month, usually a Wednesday, combined with a poetry reading. No one remembered how or why the two were combined. The burrito-eating contest and the poetry reading. It was a cultural remnant of the days of United Fruit with which locals did not part, a ritual that perhaps tied them to their history and a needed reminder of their past. The winner of the burrito-eating contest was awarded a quart of tequila by Ramirez and, of course, like the other contestants, all the burritos they ate during the contest. Rojas was one of the regularly selected contestants. For him, however, it was not about winning the contest. It was more about getting the free meal. As Rojas sat down at the bar, Fernando, the bartender, came over and without asking placed a rock glass of cheap tequila and ice with a small withered slice of lime in front of Rojas. Rojas removed the slice of lime from the rim of the glass and held it up for closer examination before dropping it on the bar. This lime has seen better days, he replied, loud enough for Fernando to hear him. And so have you, Fernando replied blandly, tired for the moment of Rojas's well-known contentiousness. Rosalita came over and sat next to him. I'm not buying you a drink, Rosalita, Rojas immediately said, in anticipation of a second request from her. He lifted the glass of tequila to his lips. Where is your girlfriend, uh, Maria? Why is she not with you, Rosalita asked, as she seated herself, knowing that Maria was behind the bar bathing. Probably taking a bath, he replied. You're not going to watch her, she asked with a slight snicker. No, I know what she looks like. Let her young body excite the others, he replied. Does anything excite you anymore, my dear Rojas, Rosalita asked, leaning into him, hopeful, seductively recalling their past liaisons. Rojas continued to look stoically straight ahead unmoved by or unaware of the attempted seduction, and took several sips of tequila, making her wait before answering. Yes, Rosalita, there are three things, he replied, setting his glass down for emphasis and pursing his lips, none of which you can provide to me. A good bowel movement, a woman who does not talk, and a quiet nap. Rosalita stood up and salted. Que te fold pez, she said, and then went back to the front door to solicit others while Rojas smiled at her remark. Maximilian came walking into the bar. He scratched at the unwashed and unkept curly black hair on his head 
and then at the spotty stubble on his face. His clothes, which he had slept in, were dirty, and he stopped for a moment and pulled up his pants, which had slipped down, refusing the repeated request of his hands to ride up over his large belly. His life, like his personality, was covered with insignificance. And like too many living on the economic margins, there was a smallness to his thinking. He then sat on the bar stool next to Rojas. Rojas immediately smelled the pungent scent of the barnyard where Maximilian slept. Rojas, I have a job shearing some sheep next week and may need some help, Maximilian said, raising his hand to get the bartender's attention. I'm happy to help. Just let me know when, Rojas replied without emotion. Maria then walked into the bar through the back door that led to the tubs, having finished her bath. Her long black hair was still wound up in a towel and pinned to the top of her head. Moments later, two brothers, Ricardo and Rafael, came into the bar through the front door, walking past Rosalita and went and sat at a table. They kept pointing at Maria, talking loudly about her and about having watched her bathe. Ricardo made the shape of an hourglass with his hands, and Rafael did a cat whistle. Both men laughed. They are the two little pigs who watched me through the fence, she said, feigning anger at Rojas and Maximilian as she bent forward and let down and shook out her hair. Rojas ignored her and sipped at his drink. You need to say something to them for me, Rojas, Maria insisted. Why? You are the wolf of Eros. You enjoy them watching you, Rojas replied, still not looking at him. You see how he treats me, Max? I am nothing but dirt to him. He is not a man I can respect, she said, having turned to face the younger Maximilian. I would be better off with a younger man, you know, one with some ambition and a future, she said to Maximilian, in one of her periodic public threats to leave Rojas, to which Rojas paid no attention. Maximilian didn't know how to reply to her. He looked at Rojas for help, but Rojas continued sipping his drink unconcerned. Maximilian then stood, pulled up his britches again, and with his belly poking out from under his stained T-shirt, walked over to the table and stood in front of the brothers. Hey, stop laughing and peeking at the women bathing. I mean it, he said, as firmly as he could, sucking in his stomach and sticking his chest out to seem more emphatic. And then he turned, pulled his pants back up, and went back to the bar stool. The men eventually quieted. Chapter 2. The bar only had 15 or so people, excluding the regular contestants and staff, in it for the burrito-eating contest that night. The contest was one of only two events that still occurred in San Lorenzo, but the attendance at and participation in the context had been in decline. People were worn down, tired from the years of poverty which had stripped them of their joy and freedom and pressed down on them daily, a distortion of their humanity different from the deformity offered by affluence. Many stayed home, uninterested, or were incapable of the energy necessary to socialize. Three rectangular folding tables with chairs had been set up, and the six regularly selected contestants were asked to take their seats. Rojas was the first to sit down in his usual spot at the far end of the tables, closest to the bar. Maximilian, Jacinta, Julio, Luz, and Pedro then joined him. Jacinta was one of the favorites of the small crowd, having won the contest on several prior occasions. She was a very large woman, with big, wide, shoeless feet, watermelon breasts, a hearty laugh, and a cutting voice that carried. Julio, a diminutive man with an oversized appetite, had won the contest a few times as well. Pedro, a local farmer who owned three cows, a horse, and a dozen chickens, had won once. And Rojas, Luz, and Maximilian had never won. Fernando, who now worked at the bar and conducted the poetry reading, had been the winner for several months. But since he now worked at the bar, he could not participate in the context. 
Several patrons with little else to do waged small bets that would never be paid for future drinks on the outcome. A pitcher of water and a glass was placed in front of each contestant. Maximilian quickly filled his glass with water, as did several other contestants. That was local writer Michael T. Tusa Jr. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in every Saturday at 1 p.m. and on Mondays at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.